Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, um, it's Monique from Northgate in the progressive inner north of uh, Melbourne down here in Australia. I'm just sitting in my front yard um, harvesting some chamomile, so I'm going to dry that for tea. You might be able to hear the birds in the background. Um, I was just listening to Roma 29 and my theory about why there are more men than women listening to your podcast is... Uh, the more men probably listen to Joe Rogan and they have found out about you that way. So that's my true sense. I love what you do. Uh, thank you again for this podcast, which has been very influential to my life. Um, big love from Down Under. See ya. Hi, Chris and all the listeners out there. This is Alicia. I'm in New Hampshire finishing up a work day about midweek. I'm a hospice nurse. I work with people who are dying. These people are also living. They're living with some crazy shit just like the rest of us. Um, some of the folks I work with have addiction problems. They are um, alcoholics and they're young and it's interesting and hard no matter how long I've been doing this, uh, I've seen it before, uh, but it still is difficult to work with families that are dealing with these complicated levels of suffering. Um, at the same time that it feels difficult, it's also extremely rewarding and feels right and feels comfortable, um, even though I work in the midst of other people's shit. Um, but we all have shit. Uh, it feels good to help with these folks and their families and navigate what they live with every day at the end of their lives. And I know your listeners uh, can appreciate that and are dealing with their own shit. So we're all in it together. Thanks for uh, this podcast. Uh, why, thank you, Alicia. And Monique and everybody else out there, thank you for those very inspiring uh, messages from chamomile to hospice care. Um, and a special thank you to Alicia for doing the work you're doing. That is uh, admirable and so needed. It's strange, you know, when my dad was dying, it was so apparent to me how people that we don't think about um, in normal life become so incredibly important um, when someone's on their way out. You know, whether it's the woman who the, uh, I guess, his social security or his insurance or something uh, paid for a woman to come and, and help my mom uh, a few times a week. Um, you know, and this is a person who's probably getting paid, you know, 12, 13 bucks an hour um very much a being taken advantage of i would say by the system you know 
probably uh, uncertain immigration status, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, but her presence was so pivotal, so important. And, um, you know, I will say that uh, I made sure that we paid her a lot more than she was getting from her employer. And a lot of that was thanks to you, people who support this podcast. I've said it before, but I haven't said it for a while, that uh, a lot of the um, financial support that you throw toward this podcast goes on to other people, at least 20, 30 percent. I've got pretty low overhead and I still get some royalty money from uh, Civilized to Death and Sex at Dawn and... So I'm able to sort of put it together. I do use some of the money that you send me for my own expenses, uh, of course, in the van and, uh, you know, whatever, microphones and this and that. But uh, a significant amount does go on to other people who need it more. Um, Anyway, my point was just that there are uh, people who come into our lives at these pivotal moments. You know, you have a car crash and the cop shows up and pulls your ass out of a burning car and... You know, maybe before that happened, you sort of thought about cops and, and felt antagonistic and afraid and, you know, they're going to fuck up my life and catch me with a joint and so on. And, and that's all legit. Um, but in a moment of need, the fireman who saves you, the the cop who pulls you out, the you know, the, those people who make these brief appearances in our lives um, at moments of great need like that have such amazing impact. Anyway, that's all just a very long winded way of saying, uh, thank you very much, Alicia. I'm very appreciative of people like you. I'm going to do something I rarely do, which is read you a little bit of my own writing from, uh, sex at dawn. This is uh, the beginning of chapter 20. It's called on Mona Lisa's mind. And it begins like this. Faced with the mysteries of woman, Sigmund Freud, who seemed to have an answer for everything else, came up empty. Despite my 30 years of research into the feminine soul, he wrote, I have not yet been able to answer the great question that has never been answered. What does a woman want? It's no accident that what the BBC called quote, the most famous image in the history of art, unquote, is a study of the inscrutable feminine created by a homosexual male artist. For centuries, men have been wondering what Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa was thinking. Is she smiling? Is she angry? Disappointed? Unwell? Nauseated? Sad? Shy? Turned on? None of the above? Probably closer to all of the above. Does she contradict herself? Very well, then. The Mona Lisa is large, like all women, but more, like all that is feminine. She reflects every phase of the moon. She contains multitudes. That last bit is a reference to uh, a couple lines from Walt Whitman in Song of Myself. He says, he writes, do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. When I was growing up, maybe the most sought-after information in my little world was, what do women want? How do women think? 
what's going on over there? Uh, you know, because I wanted to be invited over there. <laughs> and so I wanted to know, what are they thinking? What do they want? What, what impresses women? What turns them on? What are they thinking about me and other men? Um, and, you know, this was before the internet. So there wasn't, I mean, there were books and I read a bunch of them and, uh, you know, magazines and stuff, but it was all filtered through some sort of commercial moralistic lens. There, there wasn't a direct access the way there is now through the internet to people's um, thoughts. And that's a long-winded way of introducing you to the guests this week who are Anya Kotz and Aaron Jindershaw, who co-host a podcast called Whore Rapport. Rapport as in two people who have a great rapport with each other. Um, that podcast is in addition to Anya's podcast, which is called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. She's been on here before. And we talked about that. And uh, her very interesting background in terms of her family life and some of her own experiences uh, that have informed her her understanding of relationships and sexuality and gender and, and so on. Erin um, is uh, a very good friend of mine and of Anya's. Um, and the two of them have put together this podcast where they basically – speak with each other. So far they haven't had any guests except I guess me because they're going to co they're going to release this as an episode of Horror Report as well. Um but generally it's just the two of them. They pick a theme and they talk about it. Jealousy, uh kink, power dynamics, monogamy, cheating, whatever. Uh all things that are fascinating uh to all of us and Essentially, what they do is they allow the listener to sit in and hear this conversation between two very smart young women in their early 30s, um, openly talking about these issues uh, in ways that, man, I would have given my left arm to be able to listen to conversations like this when I was, you know, late teens, early 20s. Uh, it's it's incredibly valuable. So if you're a guy who's trying to figure out what is it that women want, uh, this is a very rich source of information that I would recommend to you. If you're a woman who is tired of feeling alienated and judged and strange for being sexual and, and thinking about sex and being fascinated by sex, well, I would certainly recommend the podcast to you as well. It's, or if you're, you're an older person like me and you're wondering what are young people thinking about what's going on with gender and relationships and all this kind of stuff. It's a fantastic source of information. They're both, as I said, very, very smart, very knowledgeable and, uh, and courageously transparent and open. So I highly recommend Horror Rapport available wherever podcasts are found. This episode, by the way, is brought to you by Lilo. Seems appropriate. We're doing another giveaway. Uh, this month, we're doing the uh, Smart Wand, which is basically kind of um, modeled after the Hitachi Magic Wand, the famous Cadillac of vibrators. But uh, this is a very updated version. It's 
USB chargeable, totally waterproof, super high quality silicon, uh, programmable. Like I think there are 10 different uh, programs for different vibrational sequences and so on. So this is, you know, obviously can be used as a sex toy, but it can also just be used as a massage uh, uh, aid. Um, you know, you can put it on your shoulders or whatever. <laughs> you can you can use it wherever you want to use it. It's a two hundred dollar value. Uh, we're giving it away, and all you need to do is go to my Instagram feed that Chris Ryan, and uh, you will see a way to enter. You know, uh, we do the same thing every month. So this is the second one, I think. If you're thinking of getting yourself or someone you love or like a sex toy for the holidays, you can get 20% off if you use the code Chris Ryan, no space, just Chris Ryan at Lilo. You get 20% off all full priced items. And uh, I will also put a link in the description, the landing page to this uh, episode. Um, but if you go to Lilo.com and use the code Chris Ryan, you will get 20% off any full-priced item. All right. As you'll hear in our conversation, I really admire these two women. And uh, much like Alicia, who's working at the hospice, I, I think that what they're trying to do is, is address a lot of unnecessary suffering uh, which is the same thing that I tried to do. Casilda and I tried to do in Sex at Dawn. So, ma so many people are suffering so much around sexuality, um, so much shame, so much misinformation that is totally unnecessary um, because most of us are just fine and we don't know it. Everything's fine. Uh, and most of the anxiety that we have around sexuality is based upon confusion. And so when people are brave enough and articulate enough and strong enough and smart enough to lay it out the way these two women do, um, I think they're, they're healing. They're doing very important work in helping to heal and, and to avoid these traumas in the first place. So uh, a lot of gratitude toward them. And that explains why the song I'm going to play you out with is Sexual Healing. This is not the Marvin Gaye original version. This is a, a cover by Ben Harper, uh, live version, very groovy. And, uh, you know, sexual healing is one of the most potent forms of healing. It gets a bad rap in our society because we're so twisted up around this stuff. Um, but pleasure and touch and intimacy and trust, these are the best things we've got in life. And what a tragedy that we shine this shame, this light of shame on them and, and illuminate them in ways that tries to make them look ugly. So anyone who's working against that is, uh, is a friend of mine. So enjoy this conversation with Anya and Aaron, couple of whores with an amazing rapport. Oh, baby, now let's get down tonight. Hey, 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 hey. I'm high. 
Heal me, my darling. Heal me, my darling. I can't wait for you to operate me, my darling. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here with two of my favorite women, Anya Katz and Erin Jinder Shah. Did I get those names right? Yes. <laughs> Both complicated names subject to interpretation. Uh, the co-hostesses. Are you co-hostesses? Is I've, that what it is? I've never said or that. Is, but is I like host it one of those words that has now become pansexual like is it is it insulting to refer to a woman as a hostess these days like an actress not these women not these women not these bitches <laughs> okay and that's one of the things we're going to talk about today is sensitivity to language and and your role and all that so you two host a podcast called whore rapport r-a-p-p-o-r-t french and i Explain to me why. One of you explain the whore part, and one of you explain the rapport part. <laughs> oh God! Let's do that. Uh, okay, you do whore. We've done entire episodes <laughs> yeah. on this. We continue to do episodes unpacking whore. Um, I mean, essentially, I think it could be boiled down to the fact that we both identify, not just sexually, but as women who are whores. <laughs> okay, but what's that mean? Um, it means you work, you, you're in a truck stop giving blowjobs for 20 bucks. Not Is in this lifetime. About? Um, no, it, it's more about the way not only we view sexuality and our own sexualities, but the way we view the world as erotic and as a place where, um, masculinity should not be demonized and femininity should not be victimized. And in what sense is that whorish? Because, uh, and let's look at the word as it's conventionally understood, right? Yeah, yeah. A whore, a prostitute is someone who is using her sexuality to, in a professional sense, to get money, typically from a man, um, and doesn't have any emotional connection to him. So it's exploitative, it's kind of cold-hearted. Presumably well, that doesn't play into your sense of how you're defining the word. Correct, no. And I would say there's you know, a power dynamic there that we do relate to that is not transactional in a literal sense. Yeah, I would say if you just take the concept of horror and remove the actual professional piece from it a bit, like what are some of the components of that? I would say a lack of sort of shame around sex and a comfort around sex, a especially freedom. Yeah. Especially in having sex with multiple people and being able to be in a relationship, but also being a professional whore, let's say. And I think also the concepts of like sex as service and maybe the camaraderie between women who do have that role professionally. Mm. I think both of us have had a similar experience of feeling like we had previous lifetimes of being whores or being sex workers. Um, so a lot of those core principles are identifying, even if we don't actually 
have the job of a whore, quote right. unquote. I remember reading an essay a long time ago by Susie Bright. Are you guys familiar with her? Who who I later got to meet and became friends with after Sex of Dawn came out. But I read the essay before I'd written that book. And uh, I remember she she worked as a prostitute for a while in San Francisco. And the essay was about some of the experiences that she had with men that were um, sort of well outside the realm of what people thought prostitutes did. Right. And a lot of it was the service aspect. And and by service, I don't mean just like, you know, helping a dude who's frustrated, you know, get off so he's not so frustrated anymore. I remember one of the stories, it went much, much deeper than that. One of the stories she told in that essay was a guy who would um, have her come over once a year always on the same date she would go to his apartment and he would lay out clothes for her to put on and then they would have dinner together and the clothes and the makeup and the wig and everything was from his dead wife and what she one day it was their anniversary one day a year he would treat himself to this memory or illusion or whatever it was and honestly i don't even remember whether sex entered into it at all um but so much of what sex workers do is on that kind of level or working you know with a a guy who's physically disabled or yeah you know you hear all these stories about men who are honest with the prostitute about who they really are because they don't need to worry she's not going to reject him she's not going to divorce him she's not going to yeah. Yeah. Well, that, and I interviewed that madam, this woman, Antonia, on my other podcast, who's a madam. In New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. And she said that the vast majority of women um, that work at this brothel are caretakers, nurses, like in all right. different forms of life, they, they take Mothers on a sort of, of yeah. little kids caretaking role right Right. um and that that although it's a job and it's complex and multifaceted that is a big part of it that a lot of these that it's much much beyond sex and more about intimacy and nurturing (laughs) yeah so do both of you then view your sexuality in terms of like a way to enrich the world in some sense or to nourish people who are starving in some way? How does that fit into it? I would say so. I mean, I think we both identify with like the archetype of the sacred prostitute where, you know, pre like Judeo-Christian religion, sex was seen as actually quite spiritual and there were rituals done to honor sex and, um, you know, yeah, sex was offered as a sacred service, which, you know, like anything else it's hard to sort of like tear ourselves out of our current day context um but in thinking about how sex and spirituality sex and religion were once at one time quite intertwined um i think that's how we've always felt from before we could even like talk about sex or have sex it felt like this very sort of clean sacred pure thing which seems antithetical to sex but that's kind of the way that it it felt it seems antithetical to sex because we're speaking from a culture that has demonized it and dirtied it up but once you get out of that then it's kind of totally intuitive right yeah we 
barely view it as a basic human need at this point, which it absolutely is. And if you can't even view it that way, then, you know, this nuance around nurture and around care and around, you know, it being something that we can provide to each other and help each other with and through. There's no space for that. Right. So do you see, is there any sort of qualitative difference between sexual intimacy and other forms of intimacy? <clears throat> yes. I I think it's, you know, I heard someone refer to sex once as sort of like an intimacy shortcut. And I think on some level, I agree with that. Hey, it's not that short. <laughs> right. Um, but I think really what, what that, what I think of when I hear that is the depth, like sexual intimacy does take you emotionally, of course, physically, but it does take you deeper more quickly. I mean, it's sort of like always often, not always, but I think it has the capacity to do that sort of innately. Um, in a, do you think? Sorry, go no, ahead. no, no, no. Go ahead. Do Do you think that that capacity is different in men and women? Hmm. I don't know. Is it? <laughs> My instinct. Well, is to I mean, say we're no. all speaking from personal experience, <laughs> yeah, right? right? Yeah. But you know, there have been times in my life where I had sexual friendships with women, you know, extended and multiple women. And, you know, we've all talked about this with each other before that it was easier for me to maintain that, like the limits that that's what this is. We're friends. We have sex. I'll never be your boyfriend. Yeah. Well, I would, Um, I would, whereas the women, often not always but often got to a point where they wanted more intimacy felt like they needed more intimacy felt like they you know what had been pleasurable and fun was becoming painful and disruptive yeah is that just me because i'm a cold-hearted motherfucker (laughs) or do you think men might have a greater capacity to maintain that well i think the question was like you know or discussing sex as a shortcut to intimacy regardless of how well someone can set a boundary or not. I think, let's say, when the boundaries aren't there, when the floodgates are open, yes, of course, sex can be a very short, you know, direct path to to intimacy. I would agree, though, that I think women have a more difficult time setting boundaries around feelings and intimacy than men do. Um, But I would say that's not just with sex, necessarily. I think that's a a female issue more broadly. So do you think it's universally female on a, like on a biological level, or do you think it's cultural indoctrination? I think, I I mean, just talking about boundaries in general, being able to say like protect oneself, trust oneself to know when to not go farther. I think that's a very sort of like effect of a patriarchal, patriarchal, you know, capitalist system where where women are, yeah, women are fawning basically all the time. What can I do? How can I? There, there are, there isn't a lot of self-empowerment desire to speak up, to protect oneself. I think the, we, we, it's just a learned behavior, um, like mother wounding and all that crap. Do you think there's an element of it that is a reflection of the physical reality that intercourse happens within a woman's body and outside a man's body? I mean, 
how do you set a boundary inside your own body? <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. I've never thought about that before. Me um, either. Practice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and I don't know. I think that, like, let's take it farther than just male, female. I think the feminine in general is pretty porous and open and you know, in a healthy way, vulnerable and trusting. And yes, you know, if vulnerability is sort of the overarching structure of, let's say, a healthy feminine expression, which I think it is. But not male? No, I'm not I'm not saying, not male. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So both yeah. men and women can embody something like that. But if we're just talking on an energetic basis, mm. like being open and sort of being able to flow and, you know, th- those things are by nature, I think, a lot more... I hate to use the word again, vulnerable, but also like at risk of being taken advantage of and abused and all of that. Um, and I think on a sort of personal and collective level, it's hard for women to engage in like healthy femininity necessarily because of the way the culture is structured and the way that we. Because of the like indoctrination toward. I mean, vulnerable and helpless are two different things. Hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a big distinction, yeah. right? So, you're, if I understand you correctly, Anya, you're saying that there's a quality of vulnerability that's inherent in in femininity, but helplessness is being taught by a culture that tells you that there is no feminine power. Correct. Right. right. Okay. That's like the shadow feminine is helplessness, right? The the healthy feminine would be vulnerable, vulnerable, and which is an expression of power. Hundred, yes, yes, right. Yeah, when vulnerability and helplessness are not conflated, then right. vulnerability is strong. Right. Just the fact that they're conflated, I think, is a very sort of like poignant thing in regard to the way in which we look at vulnerability like it's often misunderstood like Brene Brown's entire career is like redefining vulnerability as something that's powerful and courageous and not helpless and weak and pathetic (laughs) yeah and by the way we we should probably note that we're recording this podcast about an hour after uh Joe Biden was declared president-elect yes and you know there's an interesting dichotomy or an interesting way to look at uh, the masculine and how masculinity deals with vulnerability and strength, right? Donald Trump obviously sees masculine strength as being uncaring and cold and sort of, um, I don't know, not uh, the opposite of sensitivity, right? Numb to other people's suffering. Yeah. Whereas Joe Biden, one of his appeals is that he has suffered and he yeah. knows what it is to suffer. And there's some... It's empathetic and There's some empathy, and, yeah. right, right. So they're two very different images of sort of the, the mirror of what we're talking about here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so so whore. We've, we've talked a bit about whore. You guys are trying to reclaim this. I hear neither of your mothers are happy about Nope. The name. Actually, of the my mom. My mom hasn't said anything either way. Oh, really? No, but I think oh. both my parents are are down. Yeah, your your parents. <laughs> I know both of your, all four of your parents, and they're all uh, they're all very open minded, uh, relaxed, accepting, supportive people in their various ways. Do you think? I mean, could you two be having the sorts of conversations that you're having publicly if your parents weren't who they are? 
Mm. Prob- I mean, I guess theoretically, I don't feel like I would be the type of person that I am if it weren't for how open right. uh, my parents were. Specific, I mean, about different things, but specifically about sex, there right. was always... Um, yeah, very, they're very understanding, very curious, very forgiving. And I think that was very shaping of my identity. For people who haven't listened. So you have two podcasts. You have your own podcast. Yes. Called the Anya Kotz Hour. <laughs> <laughs> a Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Oh, that's right. Yeah. A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. <laughs> and uh, and then you do this podcast together with Aaron. Correct. Rapport with a W. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so people who haven't heard you on my podcast or on your own podcast, just to bring them up to speed, your father's gay, uh, your mother's not. Yeah. Your father knew he was gay when he got together with your Gay-ish, mother. Gay-ish, yeah. She knew. Yeah. Um, and so it's one of those, it's, I think it's quite a rare situation where a gay man and a straight woman get together and have kids. Mm-hmm. There's no lie. There's no bullshit. There's no closets. It, it was a decision. So your parents, like, having an open, realistic understanding of sexuality is built right in, like, before you were conceived. They were talking about stuff in a pretty yeah. open way. Yes. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and Aaron, your parents, your dad's not gay. Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he is a, I mean, he, but your father, I, I love both your parents, and your father is unafraid of I don't know if he's always been this way but at this point in his life he's very clearly unafraid of feminine energy within himself he loves to cook he loves to share wine with people he's very much like um you know he's he's a guy hospitality masculine hospitality that's (laughs) exactly exactly it he's very very into that yeah he's gentle but not in a passive way yeah it's just built into who he is. I feel like and he's got a silly little dog. That's my mom's silly little dog. But yes. But he's very kind in his taking care of and Yeah, he's yeah. very very nurturing. Yeah, I think we actually have had very similar experience as far as our father figure went in the sense of like having this understanding of masculinity as like both brave and sort of alpha and courageous and strong but also sensitive and emotional and um, I think that in and of itself is actually one way that we've, I think, been able to develop the type of like sexuality that we have and also our deep empathy for and love of, I think, men and the masculine, which is sometimes hard to come by these days, understandably. Um, but we were lucky to have a... Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I Growing up, you know, it wasn't common but it wasn't necessarily rare either to see my father cry. And, you know, he always had a good reason. It wasn't some unhinged reactive thing. Um, But that, I think, shaped a lot of my perspective. Yeah, Yeah, I had the same experience. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I've seen my father cry too. I wonder if that's like like a tribe. Like there are people who've seen their fathers cry and people who haven't. Because I remember uh, a girlfriend I had very early on, I remember her saying, we were talking about this, about masculinity. She was Puerto Rican and grown up in the Bronx and broken family, rough background in, in many ways. And I remember her saying at one point, 
I think it was when her parents were splitting up, her father was taking his things and leaving, and it was like really uh, difficult. And and she said something like, "Daddy, are you going to cry?" And he said, "Men don't cry, we suffer." Jesus, yeah. I remember thinking, well, that's interesting and sad, and like, like I think we cry and suffer, you know. <laughs> or if you cry, you might suffer less. Maybe I don't know. I mean, I've there's something very frightening about crying. Yeah, and maybe it gets back to the vulnerability that we were talking about, and you know, the strength of vulnerability or the 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 sort of familiarity, maybe. Yeah, I think it's a, a lack of control, right? Which I also think is a sort of feminine by nature, like really, like. I like an orgasm or something. It's like for a moment there, you just totally let go right? and you relinquish control to whatever because you don't really have control. Uh, I sort of, I think that's how it feels when, when so I that cry. that explains why I can cry for about 15 seconds and you can cry for three or four minutes. <laughs> I can cry for three or oh, four hours. Over and over. <laughs> multiple, multiple crying fits. I think there's shame too. I mean, yeah. specifically around male tears. But I mean, I felt shame while crying or after crying before if the oh, context, yeah. you know, sort of encouraged that. Which it- I find that it's, uh, well, maybe the word isn't easier, but I cry more often the older I get. Mm. And I don't know if that's a hormonal shift, if like testosterone blocks, you know, that reaction i also find it's easier for me to cry in airplanes interesting which you know i've always thought has something to do with oxygen levels (laughs) but like all emotions like when i'm on an airplane watching a movie if it's a comedy i'm laughing my ass off like way more than i would be elsewhere you know (laughs) so true and if it's sad i'm like choking up a lot yeah yeah, yeah. You, you get that too, and it's not just because I'm normally I've eaten an edible before I got on the plane, <laughs> but I'm, that could have something to do with it. Yeah, I feel like I cry on planes. I mean, I'll, I'll cry without watching a movie. I think it, for me, that's probably just like, oh, okay, now I'm sort of like still and quiet and can think and feel for six hours or however long I'm sitting in this chair, whereas our daily lives and our responsibilities and the distracting news and this and then that is not very receiving of or like provoking of vulnerable expressions of emotion. There's also a surrender when you get on a plane. Mm, Good point. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of a baseline vulnerability built into <laughs> totally. being on an airplane. It's very like BDSM yeah. to go. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we should I'm all submitting. be wearing ball gags and <laughs> collars. <laughs> BDSM airlines. Um, all right. So so we've talked a bit about the whore thing. Let's talk more about rapport. What is the rapport? Like you guys have known each other for how long now? Two. It'll be two years on Christmas. On Christmas is yeah. our anniversary. And I'm ga- all right, and I'm going to give myself a little plug here. I introduced you. <laughs> yes, true. Uh, I knew Aaron before that uh, for years, and when I met Anya, I thought, my God, you are so similar to this woman I know. 
Did you believe me when I said that, or did you think like dudes say that all the time? No, <laughs> Do dudes no. say that all the time. I, yeah, I don't think dudes say that all the time. Um, I did believe you. I think I trusted you in general, and I think I had said something to you that you were like, "Wow, I've heard Aaron say the exact same thing." You, you both should talk. And I feel like within three seconds, we just basically left each other WhatsApp voice messages for a f- couple months at least before meeting in person. Uh, yeah, I think we met in person in February. Yeah. At Kyle Tierman's house. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. Another, another plug. Another <laughs> plug. Host um, of the, the Kyle Tierman <laughs> show. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think within three seconds, I remember Aaron said something to me on this voice text, which was like, yeah, I was always the sex friend. And this was like, I swear, 60 seconds into our communication. I just felt, I mean, that comment, but also just the way she was describing things and talking about things. And it was exactly the way I had always felt. And what what does that mean, uh, the sex friend? Like everyone would come to us about sex when we were younger, Uh, even if we had had, but way before we'd had sex. Exactly. So not that you were the friend having sex with the guy, more among women that they felt free talking to you. We were sort of both known as the women who were again, like unashamed, embracing of and curious about sexuality. And so obviously, you know, young teenage girls are talking and curious and about all of these things. And who can you go to? And it was like always people were coming to me and I would be Googling like how to give a blowjob <laughs> before I had any plans to do so and like sharing the info with. Um, and I think, though, like that experience. So how old were you when you were Googling how to give a blowjob? Oh, um, nine. Just kidding. I think I was like 13 or 14 because I, it's a very particular memory because I we had this little session where we were like I think I pro- we really had a banana I don't know it's ridiculous <laughs> but I'm giving this instruction like as if I know what I'm talking about because I'd googled it and then when it came time for the end of the year and you know you like write in your friends yearbooks and I wrote in one of my friends yearbooks like remember when I you know we talked about how to do a blowjob or something and one of her parents found it and uh, I got left. Kids are so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. did you not know that well, some adult I mean, was going to see that? I think at this point I thought, you know, we're 14, 50, and like this girl isn't going to show her parents all her little yearbook messages. But yeah, I got, and, and I got lectured by her parents. Um, so all that to say, though, I think like we both had the experience of being sort of having this dual, you know, experience of being both open and sharing and talking to our friends and feeling like this is totally normal and fun and exciting and cool Mm. and then also the feeling of being shamed by our friend's parents or seen as like the bad girl yeah Um, that's another specific thing we have in common yeah so and i think obviously like those things make sense that they go hand in hand right uh so yeah i think the rapport piece to like very longly longly long-windedly answer this question um I think one of the things, especially as women get older, when competition starts to come into play and insecurities and the culture becomes louder in terms of how women are supposed to behave separate, like on their own and together. Um, And we felt like there was such a missing link uh, with women speaking to women in a non-competitive, open, empathetic way curious way about sex you know and there's so many podcasts now with women talking about sex and it's just like the most just like vile expression of catty catty you know 
how to get a guy to fall in love with you and take all his money. I mean, it's just like really popular podcast. Yeah. Um, really? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Which is why on our website. And it's like a man hating <laughs> thing. Oh yeah. Like not explicitly, not explicitly man hating, but, but, but yes, but pretty much. I mean, you know, ha- I was listening. I forget the name of the specific podcast I'm talking about. And I almost don't want to mention it because it's not even worth checking out, but it was very much about like, okay, we're oppressed as women, you know, men are evil pigs. How do we get what we want by working within the system? Um, so, you know, using one's sexuality to manipulate men and using one's emotional, you know, or, um, yeah, emotional prowess kind of to manipulate men and say what they want to hear, um, operating in a very sort of like crude transactional way. And, uh, it's just, I think, most poignantly not nice toward men. Yeah. And not um, not any sort of, like, rapport or teamwork or uh, vulnerability between the women either. Yeah, mm. the rapport exists in the negativity. Yeah. Mm. Right, right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Right, a, a sort of, we're bonded by our mutual hatred, hatred. and victimization. Which right, so which common, is, I think... Yeah part of a large part of why we've like attached ourselves to the phrase you know demonizing masculinity because it feels so often in those cases like the women are bonding in the negativity and they're also you know reclaiming their power and vulnerability through that Mm. yeah um which is something that we both inherently disagree with yeah and have never felt i've never i think yeah i think in an intellectual sense we both understand it like when you're it's like any big movement the me too movement i feel like black lives matter uh feminine like in general it's like you hurt me so therefore i get to hurt you uh compensatory injustice yeah Yeah, exactly exactly. it's this like you've uh, you know you hurt me, I was treated unfairly, so now I got to do whatever I want because I'm angry and full of rage. And, like, that's a valid emotion. I've definitely, in my life, been like, wow, that person hurt me. I feel extremely angry, and I'm inclined to lash out or act the same way that they did toward me, toward them. Um, But I think, like, that's a phase of an evolution, and I think we don't... Women, and not just women, in general... We often get stuck in the anger phase and that becomes revolutionary somehow like that anger and that rage and that hatred that unprocessed trauma and pain like to becomes out of that yeah yeah and that's not powerful in our mind what's more powerful is moving uh, like uh, identifying with that expressing the rage you know acknowledging it but moving beyond that a bit to see like okay well how do we how do we heal this rapport between whatever we're talking about, white people and black people, men and women? Blah, blah, so blah. you two are like the Gandhis of uh, <laughs> sexual revolution, nonviolent yeah. sexual revolution. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, getting back to something you said earlier about how you both were the bad girl in certain people's eyes. Yeah. It's interesting because I know you both quite well and I know that, you're both very um, selective and careful and discreet in your sexualities, which people might not think hearing like, oh, horror rapport. And these chicks are talking about sex really openly. Like they're easy. They've, you know, they're a couple of sluts. 
Are you sluts? <laughs> is there a difference between slut and whore? Yes, but I want you to tell... Aaron, that story that you told on one of our first podcasts about like the acting like the performing versus identifying as because I feel like that's a very yeah way. yeah it's it was just a feeling that I had through much of my adolescence that you know I had friends who I could tell were grappling with their sexuality evolving into it you know maturing as well <laughs> as women as girls maturing into women um and the way that that was expressed was very performative. It was like, I'm on stage. Look at me. Like I'm, I'm starting to slut out. I'm wearing yeah. a slutty outfit. I'm starting to like think I'm figuring things out. And so I'm going to essentially like shout that from the rooftops. Um, and also like at least put on, you know, like a, an image of promiscuity yeah. even if that's not what was really going on behind closed doors like that's how they presented themselves and I remember thinking like I want the boys who are paying attention to that to look at me like they're looking at those girls but I don't relate at all to that performance yeah you you, you said something like uh, they were performing like it but got offended when they were called a whore yeah. I wasn't performing it at all and I really liked when I was identified as or called. Yeah, like, you know, I've evolved on this, but I don't think I was ever insulted by any of the derogatory words that get thrown at, you know, promiscuous looking or seeming women. I think I was just sort of more intrigued by that than anything else. Um, And yeah, I, I I wanted that, you know, sort of coming in, that energy coming in my direction, but I, you know, performing it didn't... Didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So you wanted the desire. I wanted the desire exactly. And the and the like yeah. embodied identif- the identity. The like, yeah. Yes, I am whore like. Yeah. You know, I am sexual, yeah. but I'm not. I, that doesn't mean like that was always the weird thing for me. I actually wasn't having that much sex at all. In fact, like I was in a monogamous relationship from like 16 to 21 and I had sex with one guy, but yet I was seen as and looked at and treated as the whore the slut the sexual one just because of energy like i lost a friendship because some girl got mad at me and then called me a slut because i wore a tank top and it was like such an interesting like oh okay i think that's supposed to be offensive um but also you see something in me that i feel um and that i mean that was like a lifetime of of unpacking that but so when someone calls you like when you're 16 or whatever and yeah. and a guy or, or a woman calls you a slut or whore in a dismissive way meant to hurt you but you you both have said like hmm i was kind of intrigued by it yeah yeah it, is that because you interpret that as them saying you're powerful in a way and i hate you for it Probably. well uh- yeah, in a sense. I mean, I think... Because you know, if you're a whore, it, it means you've got some power over men. Right. And either the man or the woman who's calling you that is trying to undermine you by pointing to this power, right? Or or is it just that you're not being careful enough and therefore you're undermining her market value? Honestly, you know, at 16, I think it was simpler than all that. <laughs> I think... Uh, you know, the choice of words, slut, whore versus bitch, or, you know, some other sort of mean-spirited derogatory term. 
I heard that and felt like, oh, okay, they're choosing the word that has to do with sex. Mm. Right. So there's something in me that's triggering that specific right. exactly. type of insult. Right. And like right. the the attack on me for wearing a tank, like I was called a, a slut or a whore. I forget what she said, but I had literally not had sex yet. And she, her answer when pushed was, but you were giving blowjob lessons. Maybe I guess to my (laughs) inner circle, but nobody knew that. And like, I really hadn't done anything overtly sexual. So, so her thing of like, okay, she's calling me this sort of sex infused word. We both know she was a close friend. We both know I'm not actually very sexual in terms of like explicit sexual acts. So what she's calling out right now is beyond that. It's different than just promiscuity. And I think Mm -hmm. that's where I started to think about like, what does it mean to be identified as or embodied in sexuality or sexual Mm -hmm. empowerment without that correlating necessarily to like lots and lots of sexual acts, which is not what I was doing at all ever still so one of the things that 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 you two feel a rapport over is that both of you experience life in an erotic sense in through eroticism which is not the same as sex so you were an erotic being before you ever had sex right and i'm sure we've all had sex that was not particularly erotic so let's let's distinguish those two things clearly now, do you think that you are just unusually unrepressed, getting back to your parents and the way you grew up and all that, and that all women experience life erotically and most of them are just repressing it? Or do you think that you're unusually uh, oriented toward an erotic interpretation of life? Um, I think I've had an ambitious curiosity around sexuality from a very, very, very young age. I mean, as long as I can remember. And at least for a while, that was sort of blind. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why it stayed that way for longer than... Blind, meaning you were unaware of it? Like, no, I was just following a smell. Right, yeah. Yeah. Like, it was pulling me. Yeah. And, you know, all the sort of negativity and bullshit and shame and repression. It's not as though I wasn't aware of it. Of course I was. But it was like, it doesn't matter. Like, I see all that stuff, but it's like over here and I'm on a path. Um, Which you identified as being... uh, erotic in some sense well yeah i mean i think in some sense yeah i mean i think i had just this like deep innate very strong erotic curiosity and you know it was messy i'm not saying that the whole time i knew what i was doing certainly not or that i you know haven't felt shame in my life of course i certainly certainly have but for some reason that that curiosity was so powerful and loud to me that it allowed me to sort of, you know, overlook or or just release some of the bullshit that I think a lot of men and women get caught up in, um, understandably. <laughs> and where was it manifesting? Like, were you reading erotic literature or into erotic photography or films or like, 
how were you bringing it into your life? Primarily through my relationships. And again, you know, this is before I'm having sex, but I would, you know, I was always the friend who was like asking my friends about their opinions on things or like, especially my male friends. Um, when I was in middle school and high school, it was much easier actually for me to talk to my male friends about sex than it was for me to talk to my female friends about sex. Why? Because there wasn't a competitiveness? Or? There wasn't a competitiveness. There wasn't... Um, the. There was judgment, but it was a different type of judgment. It was more actually... <laughs> now that I think about it, from their end coming through as insecurity. So any sort of like, how do you know that? Or or why are you asking me that? Was more about, you know, them discovering their own <laughs> sexuality um, than it was them judging mine. And I didn't... Interesting. I didn't feel that way. Because yours is kind of like so obscure to them. Yeah. That you're playing on their home court. Right. Yeah, I always felt like that. I always said, like, I talk about sex like a guy. That would be, like, how I right. introduced yeah. myself. Um, it wasn't, yeah, I was, it was curio- curiosity. And I guess, like, going back to your question about whether we're unique or if that's a sort of overarching female experience, I mean, I think I think both. I We talk a lot about our early adolescence, you know, uh, early teenage girl lives which were very explicitly sexual especially with our female friends there was a lot of like hours and hours spent enacting erotic plots um, where we would play different roles and like dry hump each other and put our hands on our mouths and make out and um, had these elaborate ways that we were gonna like if our parents caught us what we you know what what we were doing and um, there were per- specific friends who that happened more frequently with than others, but, you know, or like I had my friends would come over and we'd all take our shirts off and have rubbing parties where we'd like massage each other with coconut oil topless and like, <laughs> How come I never got invited to parties like that? Uh, and there were, there were for sure girls at that age who were less comfortable with it than I was. And some of my mm. friends were, um, but even the friends who were comfortable with that stuff then grew up to be a lot more um, uncomfortable with or lacking in embodiment around sexuality. So I think it's a, I think at women in general, I do think are are quite erotic and embodied sexually, but because of their parents or the culture or their friends or the time period or whatever, there's like eight different layers of shutting down um, that it doesn't surprise me that, um, that it's hard to find other people uh, like us and, and why our rapport was so sort of immediate and familiar and relieving, I think. Totally relieving. So, when, I mean, given that, given that, do you agree with that, Aaron? By the way, that that most women are far more erotic than they let on. Definitely, yeah. Do you do you guys sometimes meet a woman, or do you think of women that you know already who you sort of look at and say, "God damn, I wish I could liberate you." I can see, <laughs> I can see how juicy you are, but you're pretending you're not. Yeah, and I recognize because as a man, I do. I mean, that's one of my favorite things actually is is to see a woman who's like just ready to you know leave that shit behind break free yeah 
Uh, absolutely, I do. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's, I've definitely meet women and within an instant are just like, you are like me. You, I mean, you're in yeah. this tribe. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, I mean, it can be so subtle as the way that she makes eye contact. Or right. It, 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 and it's, I think it's a curiosity. Totally. There's like, there's not a shiftiness. You know, you look, and it's, especially amongst women, you know, looking at a woman and having her catch you looking at her nine times out of 10, the woman looking will, will move away and, and not want you to know that she's looking. But sometimes there'll be a woman where you make eye contact and she just looks in this sort of like hungry, sort of like curious, erotic way. And I feel like that among many other signs are, yeah, there's definitely moments where it's very quick. I wonder well, Aaron, you've been to Spain. I don't. I don't remember how much time you spent there, but because when you were saying that, I was thinking about my experience with women in Spain, and <clears throat> that sort of eye contact thing in yeah. Spain is much less inhibited than it is in the U.S. One right. of the big things I notice in the U.S. is just walking down the street. If you look at a woman and you happen to catch her eyes, she will almost always look away right away, fear, shame, whatever it is. Whereas in Spain, it's very common that a woman will just look right back at you. And that is so fucking hot. Yeah. And it doesn't, as I've said on my podcast many times, it doesn't mean you're going to fuck her. It doesn't mean you go ask her for a phone number. It doesn't mean anything. She could be 75 years old. <laughs> it just means that you recognize it's something in each other for yeah. a second. And there's just this energy of like, yeah. You just made me happy just f because you exist and I happen to see you today. It's just that, you know, which goes way beyond attraction or agendas or anything like that. Um, I wonder in Spain if that is more common among women. Mm. You know, that's where I was going with that. Yeah, because I think the looking away when a, as far as a woman is concerned is different than looking away because a right. man makes eye contact. Right, because you... I guess you're not afraid of other women in the sense that you may be afraid of men. Right. You don't want to lead them on. You don't want this guy hassling you. You yeah. don't want him, you know, stalking you. That seems to be much more of a concern in America than it is in Spain. I think it's a very, very competitive thing. There's exactly such competition between yeah. women in America, um, which is another thing that we try to sort of like just alleviate a bit or ex exemplify a kind of a relationship that isn't like that um, with each other. Because <laughs> like, you know, there's a thing with women like, oh, I don't want, I don't want her to know I'm looking at her because she's attractive or maybe she'll think mm. that I'm, you know, uh, uncomfortable or insecure or yeah, it's this sort of, I don't want her to know I don't want her to think she's worth my time. Whatever the thing is, it's... It's like you're giving her power that she could then use to yeah, hurt you. Right. Right. Expressing, like, you looking at me is somehow expressing your insecurity. Like, I don't know what that is. But, mm. I, I mean, I... I've seen, too, experienced um, looking at a woman that I, you know, find intriguing. Maybe not even physically attractive, but there's something about her that's intriguing. Um, and she'll be with a man and if we make eye contact it's often from that competitive fearful yeah. place like she thinks i'm looking at her man or whatever mm. um but nine times out of ten i'm looking at her <laughs> 
and not only at her but how she's looking at him and how she's looking at the world it's sort of like it's that curiosity thing Mm. um but that's always struck me as a a very specifically american yeah and you can't you know how dare you fuck my ex-boyfriend you know if we show up at the at a party with the same outfit it's like all of this stuff we both just like relish in all of that like our wardrobes are basically if we could have a hundred percent matching wardrobes like we would do that well i I can tell our listening audience that you're sitting under a shared leopard skin blanket at the moment yeah and surprisingly not wearing an identical item of clothing but we do that all the time we do yeah yeah Yeah. um do you think is your podcast an expression of your sexuality oriented towards service yes <laughs> uh yeah and who who are you trying to help who who i mean who is your audience who do you want your audience to be uh, i mean my assumption at this point is that our audience are men and millennial and younger but a lot of millennial age men and women and a lot of men a we lot get a of lot men. of messages from men but not like this is what i think is fascinating about yeah. our podcast um and social media and just sort of the way people interact in general i to answer your question though i do think it's men and women But the men are quite unique and interesting in that I feel like I see an experience through friends of mine who post, you know, whatever, selfies and half-naked photos, sexy photos of themselves on Instagram. And I feel like the two of us post erotic-ish images, but (laughs) because of what we talk about and where we're coming from, I mean, and I have this experience on my own personal Instagram and my own personal podcast as well, like the sexual embodiment or eroticism is not met with, met with like, hey, baby, I want to fuck you. It's like met with this gratitude and relief and appreciation for, I think, especially men, especially in this day and age, for them to be able to like ask a woman a question about sex without being afraid that she's going to accuse him of something, which of course is like, all the feminists hate me. But <laughs> like men are very afraid and I think very oftentimes unaware of how to deal with women and terrified, I think, from a cultural perspective, but also like a masculine perspective. They just think they should know everything. And of course they don't. And they never ask. And so to have this like space where they can actually feel free to say something stupid or ask a vulnerable question or genuinely compliment a woman for her intelligence or beauty without it being perceived as, oh, that guy just wants to fuck me. You're an asshole. You know, there's like these gentlemanly types of men. Yeah. Or just share. Yeah. We got a long email the other day from a man who's just sort of reflecting on, you know, an aspect of his own sexuality, not necessarily asking anything of us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So how many episodes have you done so far? Uh, We've released 22. Hmm. 22. What are are some of the subjects? Uh, The last one we did was sexual friendship. Yeah, we've done one on cheating. Mm -hmm. So far, you haven't had guests. It's just the two of you discussing an issue. Yes. Correct, yeah. Uh, Desire, non-monogamy. Embodiment. Jealousy. Lots of episodes, again, like further unpacking the concept of whore and what that means. Uh, We just recorded one on 
like crushes and unrequited love. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> so you're, I mean, it's, it sounds like the relationship that you have to many of your male listeners is not dissimilar to the relationship that a sex worker would have in the sense of, okay, you know, I don't know you, um, but I'm open and honest and you're paying me for my time. So ask me whatever the hell you want, dude. I'm not going to shame you for it. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I just had this reflection this morning in the bathtub. Uh, we put up a post on our Instagram, uh, promoting our Patreon that we just launched and we named the different tier levels. The highest one was whore. So we said something in the caption, like if you join at the whore level, <laughs> And our in, our post immediately got flagged and taken down for sexual solicitation. And then this morning I was I follow this woman who also has a podcast about sex, who also just put up a post that got flagged in the same way. And she says she'd never seen that before. And it was it was I, I started thinking about the idea of selling sex as an act and selling sex as a concept. It's like if you boil it down according to Instagram guidelines, like what is selling sex? You know, it can be selling actual sex a sexual act that i'm going to perform or i'm selling sex as a part of an integrated life and a healthy life and Hmm. um it was just sort of fascinating like boiled into some silly instagram rule how there is a correlation i think between like whores offering sex to clients and us having this podcast which you know men and women listen to of a sexual nature um where yeah especially on the level at which uh a whore is potentially offering her client his own sexuality. <laughs> right. Yes, totally. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. not it's not my pussy that I'm selling you. It's I'm selling you a knowledge that will help you right. relate to yourself and understand right. yourself better. For sure. Yeah. So, okay, let's say you guys this, you know, I think most of my audience is probably the target audience that you're talking about, right? Like A lot of young men and women who are figuring shit out or open-minded or skeptical of conventional wisdom. What You guys are both in your early 30s, so you've been around the block (laughs) once, maybe twice. Um, What advice would you give to a 20, 21-year-old guy who is, like, confused by women doesn't want to hurt anybody but feels full of desire and hunger and like how do you how do you navigate that yeah i think it's complicated i think listen to horror porn yeah yeah exactly (laughs) um because you know i think I could give that man advice to some extent, which doesn't necessarily mean though that he's not going to come into contact with like a woman or a man who's going to be cruel or Mm. unfeeling uh, or accusatory toward that expression. But I would say like, I think when I was on Kyle's podcast, he asked me the same thing. And I think I said something like just really genuinely asking yourself if you can, removing shame, removing fear, like what attracts you and why and then like following the breadcrumbs and mm. and also being very very honest about that with someone else um i think the scarcity mindset is particularly 
like traumatizing and damaging to younger men because I think a lot of women their age are having sex with older guys or something and it's just like there's a desperation there that I think at a young age will often manifest in like the losing of one's dignity that I think we talk about all the time. It's like, I'm so desperate that it doesn't matter what my morals are, my integrity, my boundaries. I just need to have sex. So I'll just do whatever you want. I'll say whatever you want me to say. And of course, Mm. maybe in the immediate that, you know, allows someone to have sex, but in the long term, it doesn't lead to either party's growth or um, identification or knowing of oneself and one's sexuality. Quite the opposite, right? If if what you're doing is you're, you're sacrificing your, self-respect yeah to get laid then the pursuit of sex actually runs against the maturation and your own dignity yeah and i think contrary to conventional women women (laughs) (laughs) contrary to conventional wisdom women are attracted to strong you know quote unquote dominant men who know what they like who know what they want and who aren't who women can't control. Like women are not as attracted to men that they feel like they can manipulate and control as they mm. are to men that I think they know that they can't. Like that man's going to set a boundary here or well, let's stipulate when you say that they can't control. You're not talking about a rapist or a stalker no, or some no, some no, no, no. No, no, no. Guy expressing dominance in a way that's disrespectful or dangerous. But yeah, like you go on a date and if the guy's just constantly like, I don't know, what do you want? Can I do this? How about this? I understand that that's what men think they should be doing. And there's a level to which, of course, like that type of awareness and courtesy is is valid and and good. Um, But the total sort of emasculization, which I've been thinking a lot of in relationship to dignity, Mm. is not strengthening to that man nor appealing to that woman especially long term uh so yeah i think being being able to and willing to survive a period of shit you know in order to like really just not settle or make sacrifices as to what you want like if you you know have a date with a woman and she's you know, calls you whatever and thinks you're obnoxious, even if you know, like in your integrity, you weren't, there's a better woman out there. You know, that's not representative of, of all women, nor is it, nor should you settle. Um, it's kind of like career, right? Like you get out of high school, you need a job or out of college, you need a job. Do you take the first job that comes along? And if you do, do you redirect your entire life now to say, this is what I'm going to do as long as they'll have me right. because I de- desperately right don't want to be unemployed? Right. Or do you say, you know what, I'll live in my fucking car for five years until I get a job that feels right to me yeah. and I'm willing to put up with that scarcity right. in order to have long term the situation that is right for me right and that woman doesn't want to be hurt or misled either right a guy that says hey i'm just here for something casual a friendship with sex blah 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 like of course women have the total right to say that's not what i'm comfortable with i'm looking for something more serious but that's i mean i would be you know express a lot of gratitude towards someone actually being honest with me about that and not buying me flowers and chocolates and saying they want to marry me forever when really they just want to have sex, you know? Yeah. I, it was like a revolutionary moment in my life. I've talked about on the podcast before, but when I, from the male perspective, 
I mean, I'd had girlfriends in my 20s that, you know, interesting relationships, and I, I learned a lot and I grew a lot. But there was a point where I was like, okay, I don't want a girlfriend now for a while. Like, I was you know, coming out of a relationship and, and I was really thinking about monogamy and how that felt. And, and I thought this means I'll never have another relationship because no woman will ever want to be with a guy who says I'm down for sex and friendship and I'll be honest with you, but I'm never going to be your boyfriend. I thought that was a, a fucking deal killer immediately. And in fact, it had the opposite effect. As you said, a lot of women were like, God damn, you're not lying. Wow, a man who doesn't lie. Yeah. I want to fuck you. Right. Like, Jesus, really? Yeah. Wish I'd thought and of that how, a long time how ago. How does that cycle sort of, you know, continue to grow and then sort of reflect back onto the man who's now more confident in exactly. this, right, and himself exactly. and this, it's, and it just builds and builds and builds. Yeah. Um, yeah. And specifically, I would also add, you know, don't be especially to young men, don't be afraid to ask questions of your right. partner. And, you right. know, I'm, I'm speaking, con- consent has already been established. You know, you're already in a, a mutual, mutually intimate and positive situation, um, agreed upon situation. Uh, but asking questions of your partner, you know, oh, you like that, Why? Or like, what do you, how does that feel in this context or in this way? Like, I think there's this misconception that those questions are anti-erotic, which is not true. Right. At all. It doesn't have to be. Quite the opposite. Yes, exactly. Well, just showing, showing that interest in like, hey, I, like, I know how to drive, but every car is different. And I really want to know how this one works. Exactly. Show me. Yeah. 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 I, I get that. So do you think that, you know, you were saying earlier, we were talking about your parents, you know, having a role in, in you both feeling unashamed of this aspect of life and then maybe some past life energy, <laughs> if you believe in things like that or whatever. But do you think it's also generational in the sense that, you know, you guys, you, you said you Googled blowjobs when you were 13, right? When I was 13, there's no Google. Right. So the closest I got to something like that would have been like reading Playboy Advisor where people wrote in with questions. And, you know, so I got that perspective, which I have to say was a pretty enlightened, cool, pro-pleasure perspective, um, which no doubt shaped my sexuality forever. Um, but like how old were you? the first time you saw porn for example we were just talking about this i don't i must have been four, four 13 or 14 you're gonna say four yeah oh, me no. too <laughs> 14 <Yikes. laughs> yeah and, and yeah, i was also same. doing there was a lot of like aol like sex chat rooms which wasn't explicitly porn but pretty explicitly sexual i feel like it i was, was smart. so the first time you saw video of people having sex you were 13 or 14 so, yeah or Maybe 15, 15 yeah, yeah, between there. Yeah. And wh- what was that like? What did that, how did you feel about that? Was it like, whoa, I love this, or that's creepy? Or it was like a non issue. I was about to say it was anti climax. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there was, of course, that like things being spread around like two girls in one cup or some 
I was about to say some shit. Um, which was like that, there was a version of sexuality that was definitely a little like, what is that? And like, I don't know about that. Mm. Um, but whatever I happened upon seeing some regular, relatively vanilla sex. Um, yeah, I, I just, I don't think, I, I had, I was prior to, I think, seeing porn, I was reading a lot of like erotic stories and communicating with a lot of people, sometimes strangers erotically. Uh, which was in and of itself a learning experience and maybe like a more sort of gradual yeah. expose about what sex was so that when I saw it happen, it was just like, oh, yep, okay, you know. I already knew. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time trying to like extract sexuality from pop music mm-hmm. and like, you know, listening in my room with my headphones on feeling like initially like I was getting away with something which now looking back on that I mean I was that's not porn pop music is not porn but uh it was the same sort of feeling once Mm. I did start watching porn it was like yeah and that wasn't shame it was just like excitement and curiosity and like what am I seeing what am I hearing what am I experiencing yeah I feel like we talked about the difference the other we did an episode about shame and taboo And I feel like I always identified, like, if I'm watching porn or I'm, like, a little girl masturbating or whatever I'm doing, I'm, like, making out with my posters of Justin Timberlake on the wall. Like, I knew those things should be kept secret. Like, I didn't want to be caught. But it was different than, like, I'm going to go to hell. You know, that wasn't my perspective. That wasn't Mm. my upbringing. It was just like, oh, this is a private matter. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to lock my door. I'm going to do this when my mom's not going to walk in on me. Um, But there wasn't, like, a this is bad kind of a connotation to Do it. you both remember your first orgasm? Hmm. I th- yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Did it involve posters of Justin Timberlake? No. No. It, this, it, my first orgasm actually involved a real life, not with a real life person, but I had a crush on a boy. I was, uh, fi- it was between fifth and sixth grade. So that's nine, ten. Mm. Um, and I remember... <laughs> physically doing something while thinking about this boy and that was a weird thing too because i feel like not only was that my first orgasm but when i was actually relating the physical sensation that i think a lot of like young girls feel in the shower like oh i'm sitting on the edge of a couch and like that's interesting like i associated (laughs) that's interesting (laughs) i associated just melt the dryer exactly um i associated that pleasure uh with a man um or a man a very small boy um but it was that was like oh okay that now that's a pathway to that pleasure is is that person okay and what does that mean and what do i want to do with him and all this stuff Uh, interesting what about you um my first orgasm was purely physical I mean, I grew up, grew up. I mean, from a young age, I, I rode horses. Here we go. Yeah. Um, my first <laughs> orgasm did not involve a horse for the oh, record, but right. but I was, you know, familiar with that sensation uh, um, yeah. of having something between my legs that was stimulating. Um, but yeah, no, it was just in my body. And I was, I remember where I was in my parents' house. And I remember that I had to pee. Yeah. And for a long time, I actually thought that those two are connected. Yes, to me too, for me sure. Too. Yeah, yeah. Mm, just because you're like focused on on that part of your body, and also there's a contraction thing that occurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like right. if yeah, totally. There's a yeah. similar feeling of like 
having to pee really badly and peeing <laughs> as yeah, they're you know, to an true. orgasm. Yeah. Yeah. Just release. Just the release. I mean, yeah. holding the stream holding. is a kegel, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. right. Good point. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about your advice for young men. We didn't talk about your advice for young women. So, you know, 19, 20-year-old girl, woman who's listening, what, what do you have to say to her? I mean... I mean, the same advice, I guess. Just... You know, I think I've at many times in my life, and we've talked about this at length on our podcast, but, you know, making the choice between like, okay, here's a thing that I find attractive, that I feel desire toward, that is a turn on. If there's something out of the ordinary, out of like the vanilla ordinary there, should I automatically assume that's wrong and try to ignore it and go in the opposite direction? Mm. Or as long as I'm confident I'm not causing any harm to myself or anyone else, what might I learn or find out by pursuing that path? Right. Um, and I think the, I mean, sure, there's a lot of sexual shame for men, but especially for women, there's an excess of it. Uh, and I know for me, even someone who was from a young age, super sexually embodied, didn't have any shame for my parents. Even I made choices that were, you know, coming from a shameful position, shutting myself down, ignoring things, wondering if my attraction toward whatever it was, you know, unconventional relationships or older men, even those things were like, I don't know. And I, I made opposite choices <laughs> against those things for a long time. Um, so I think what happens if you don't do that? Like what happens if you look at your desires as healthy in mm. and of themselves and you pursue them with curiosity and openness? Like how might that enable you to become much more embodied in like a physical and emotional way? Uh, and I think also, you know, dovetailing off the what happens with men, like, women utilizing the only power they feel they have left, which is like emotional or sexual manipulation to get men or to keep men or to feel safe. Like what happens if you stop that? What happens if you just are vulnerable and you al allow someone else to be honest with you and vice versa and you leave relationships when they're not good anymore and, um, you know, you do whatever. Yeah, I also think, you know, for young women in particular, the path, obviously, to self-knowing and to self-trust is oftentimes long and complicated um, for anyone. But in terms of sexuality, um, I would say asking questions, listening, reading, not only does that sort of get your mind in an interesting you know, space. Um, it also, I think it also protects you at a young age. From what? You learn to distinguish the difference between nerves and like a gut reaction, mm. you know, identifying a situation that's actually dangerous versus a situation that feels dangerous right. because it's unfamiliar. Totally. And if you've never been there, the only way to tell the difference is to have the information. Right. Yeah, and to and to just fully embrace nuance, like another thing we talked about yesterday, you know, there can be a specific type of 
relationship, let's say, like with a power dynamic or with something that is unhealthy and is being expressed poorly and is hurting someone. But it could also be that you could be in a relationship which on paper might look very similar, but internally, intentionally between those two people is operating on a whole other different level, which is actually helping you grow and is very healthy. Yeah. Um, to sort of recognize that like it isn't a one size fits all. There's every monogamous non-monogamous like all these different types of types of relationships can be good you know good for you bad for you helping you grow preventing you from growing um and that you yeah developing your own intuition yeah and communication with your body about that stuff as early as possible uh i remember hearing dan savage uh at one point say that he thought one of the great tragedies of heterosexuality is that when gay men get together, the first thing they ask each other is, what are you into? Yeah. Mm. And that straight people never really ask that question yeah. of each other. So and what you two are just saying to me now is that we often don't even ask that question of ourselves. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right? Because as, I guess, being gay, you're already out of the normal club. Yeah. So mm-hmm. then you need to figure out who you are and what your path is going to be. It's like compulsory heteronormativity. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Exactly. There's this guy I love, this writer, uh, Michael Warner, who spoke about it in the sense of like, once you don't fall victim to one layer of sort of cultural or societal blackmail, he called it, you're less likely to fall victim to other layers of it as well. Which is why psychedelics can right. be so helpful for people because totally. you, you see through that and you're like, wait a minute, that's a lie? Then maybe it's all lies. Right. And, yeah. 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 So like with gay men, okay, we can't do, you know, monogamous marriage according to the law. So what do we intuitively want? And a lot of the time it's like these supportive peer groups and unconventional relationships and support networks. Mm. And it's a very, very different way of structuring intimacy and relationships than what I think normal heterosexual, quote unquote, normal heterosexual people just assume is on the table. Getting back to something you said earlier about um, the uh, emasculization of men, you know, and men thinking that, <clears throat> what they need to be doing is, you know, you know happy wife, happy life. Oh, God. That, uh, that's a phrase that hit, that just makes me want to hit somebody. Things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the other one is performance anxiety. Yeah. Bitch, I'm not performing. I'm right. not a fucking bear in a circus. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I think this idea of, um, that men need to perform and need to please women and need to be, you know, oh, the other one, my needs aren't being met. Well, then fuck off. <laughs> Go get your needs met. Some Anyway, I don't mean to be aggressive here. But my point is that uh, getting back to what you were saying about how women have a certain, you know, not all women, of course, but in general, there's a desire that women have for uh, a sort of nuanced, balanced male dominance yeah like we're gonna go to this restaurant you're gonna like it now of course if you don't like it then (laughs) he's fucked yeah but if you do like it then you're like ah this guy's okay i like that i like that he we didn't have a 20 minute conversation about where i want to go right or like the other day i was i asked you too if you could be comfortable in a relationship with a man who's a bad driver Mm -hmm. and you both said no (laughs) yeah right so it's not dominance in the sense of, you know, 
micromanaging a woman's life, but it's dominant in the sense of like, I know what I like. I know what's good. You're going to like it too. And it's a window into him that then allows you to hopefully agree that, yeah, this guy does know what he's doing. Like he's a good cook. I like that food or he, he has good taste in music or he's a good driver. Um, this is a very long-winded question. But what I wanted to get at is, you know, we've all seen these relationships. They're very common of powerful, awesome women, smart, beautiful, just flowing with erotic energy, just, you know, illuminated women with shitty dudes. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, my interpretation of that has always been that's a woman who is so desperate for that dominant male energy that she will take it from that shitty dude. Mm. Is that, am I right? Or, I mean, how do you react to that? I was going to say, I mean, before you even asked the question, just when you were like having the preamble leading up to it. (laughs) (laughs) Bloviating. (laughs) Um, I, I mean, I think, I think when it comes to a relationship, and this doesn't have to be like man, woman, male, female, right? Like, let's just say a relationship is an intersection of like masculine and feminine energy. Sure. Um, if let's say we are talking of like of a feminine embodied person and a mass more masculine embodied person, uh, or at least from my perspective, to be able to be and experience and express that femininity to relax, to let someone else take the wheel, to Mm. be in my weird, flowy, spiritual, whatever state. Like it requires a a masculine force, like a rock, someone to hold the the opposing end of that. Um, And I think that is something that, uh, like, I don't know, I see relationships all the time where the woman is, I've been in this relationship, like, the neurosis and control freak mentality taking care of everything feeling as if the man isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing is so rampant and i wonder if the situation that you're seeing like i wonder if it started off different and then the woman as she further expressed her power and sort of instead of the man kind of leveling up his power that he ended up kind of uh, diminishing her power in order for him to feel powerful so right which is a way a lot of men express dominant energy is by cutting down the woman or, or the you know right. masculine female but yeah right or just not respecting her like the whole pussy whipped thing i don't i don't think anyone's happy there i don't think that's mm. like a fully embodied calm non-anxiety producing type of relationship to me that just like both people are struggling like the the seesaw got fucked up right um by a, a multitude of different means i think it can be because the man's criticizing that woman because the woman is too domineering and too controlling and the man's not setting boundaries. I mean, there's so many different things that can happen, but um, yeah, coupled with what we talked about at the beginning, I think women just settling and not knowing that they deserve better, not knowing that they are better, not knowing that, um, yeah, or conversely not trusting that they have anything to learn or any, anywhere to grow. Like they're so afraid of the vulnerability of saying I fucked up actually like you're right i made a mistake um they just defend and defend and defend which creates walls and prevents intimacy long term 
Yeah. I think the fear piece of it is huge. I mean, obviously underlying all of this, but also, you know, the way that dark or the sort of shadow side of masculinity or femininity gets expressed. It's all coming from that place of like a lack of, like we've been saying self-trust, but underneath that is just fear. It's like a reactive state versus, you know, thinking through things and, and feeling honestly. And, you know, you're talking about, being attracted to men who can drive well and who can cook (laughs) and that is to me just an expression of like his self-confidence and his self-knowing in an authentic way and that's gets obscured obviously on both ends and very dramatic and detrimental i also asked you after you both said it would be difficult i my follow-up question was would it be harder with a man who was unskilled or a man who drove aggressively? Yeah. And both of you said aggressively, which is what I was hoping you'd say, because what that says to me is it's, it's the lack of self-knowledge. Exactly. So if a guy's not a good driver and he knows it, there's something to respect there. Right. But the guy who's a shitty driver and doesn't know it, and drives like he does. He is a good driver. So obviously we're not talking about just driving, right? We're talking about yeah. sex. We're talking about everything. Well, right? especially anger. Learn. Because one, you're yeah. open to learning. The other, you're not. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think that particular example about I've definitely been with men who were aggressive drivers. is like, if you can't control yourself and you're lashing mm-hmm. out because some person in front of you stopped short and like now you want to go get a crowbar and like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like what does that mean for yeah. our relationship and how yeah. your ability to control and manage your emotions on any other level? And it's in any scary. Other, yeah, it's scary. Yeah. Um, Can we talk about uh, something that I think is a major issue that, particularly men don't understand about women and would um, probably relieve a lot of anxiety if they did understand it. Can I pee? No, we want you to hold it. Please. (laughs) You're going to just hold it and hold it and hold it. All right. All right, we're back after our pee break. <laughs> Drinking a lot of tea. I just, yeah, I said there, and I just had a pee orgasm. Yeah, she's giggling over there. Yeah, porgasm. Anyway, uh, what I was getting into is the the, uh, and and this is nuanced, right? Because, but basically, what I want to say is that women experience attraction differently than men do and i think men have trouble understanding that um and if they did understand that they might spend less time working on their abs and more time working on (laughs) working out their shit um you know and and it relates to what we're talking about you know confidence and being a good driver or whatever it's like you know if a guy's going to the gym three times a week in order to try to impress women with his biceps, would you agree that he's better off learning to cook or dance or, or going to therapy, or go to therapy, <laughs> going to therapy. <laughs> or clean his apartment? I mean, there are a lot of ways yeah. to impress a woman that aren't 
that are much more effective and uh, you know efficient. Yeah, and I think the thing is like if you are going to the gym three times a week to get abs to impress women, you're going to impress women who think that going to the gym three times a week right. to get abs is impressive. Yeah, and is that really is the that kind really, of woman yeah. you want to spend your time with? Right, exactly. And let's be honest, how many of those guys are going to the gym working on their abs to impress guys? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, right, there's yeah. something super homoerotic about this whole, like, gym yeah. culture thing. You I know? think yeah. it is, like, it's, like, the masculine expression of, like, how female competitiveness exists everywhere. It's, right. like, 100% they're all looking at Boob each jobs other. Boob totally. jobs. Oh, I, yeah. I don't want you to see me looking at you. And I'll go, oh, your form is wrong. <laughs> your form is wrong, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and let's, uh, while we're on the subject, let's talk about dicks. Yeah. Let's talk about dicks. <laughs> Go on. It sounds like a like, on, like, yeah. like a show. <laughs> do, do, do. Let's talk about um, what do men? I mean, you guys have been with a few dudes over the years. Uh, what's the deal with dicks? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what's the deal with dicks? <laughs> do tell. Well, I, I guess what I'm saying is I think there's there's a parallel here, right? Which is that men, and this this is the nuance I wanted to get into earlier because I, I was going to say, you know, men are much more fixated on physical beauty than women are. But I think that's a young man thing. Yeah. And I think that a very important moment in a man's life can occur if he matures enough and his testosterone levels recede enough that he gets to a point where he's attracted to women. Um, you know, of course, we're always going to be into women's bodies, but where that isn't the point, mm-hmm. where you're with a woman who's fucking awesome and you express your your intimacy with that woman through your bodies, but it's not about the body. Yeah. And I feel like women start out that way. Yeah. Yes. I would say pretty much definitively uh dick size doesn't matter yeah um and pat even past that you know the whole motion of the ocean idea is what i is guess the motion of the ocean it's not the size of the ship it's the motion oh. of the ocean haven't you not heard, that before? heard that before you've heard that before right yeah. okay Anyway, the idea there, of course, being that it's not like your anatomy, it's how you use it kind of a thing. But I think even that's a reduction because women experience sex through their mind. Yeah. I mean, I've met guys who physically I was just like, nope, like not attracted to them. But then I spent more time with them and all of a sudden I'm just like, holy shit, I want to know you and have sex with you. (laughs) Yeah, the attraction grows through the knowing. And we we talked about this a lot, the admiration and the, the... I think female sexuality is often uh, an expression of admiration um, or wanting to be more like or really appreciating how someone is. And that expresses itself sexually. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the dick thing is basically been a non-issue in my life, I would say. Yeah. And I mean, for most women, it's not even... So what do you say? Because it's a billion dollar industry of guys... You know, you go to Pornhub or whatever. There's always like selling dick pills and yeah. and their operations, yeah. their fat, the injections. And what do you say to a guy who's like, 
you know, no woman's ever going to want me because yeah. I got my dick's not right well, in one way or the other. It curves or yeah. it's too small or whatever. I mean, I think part of it is, I mean, I could, I can also definitively say, like, I would prefer smaller dicks on many different levels for many different things. <laughs> like, it's just a little, it's like fake tits. It's like, okay, maybe those look all right, but like in actual experience and use, I don't know what to, they can't, they're not really very functional necessarily. Mm. Um, so I think, I think, and also, I think different women are physically built, like physiologically, slightly different. So there are some women that, you know, have much more external orgasms than internal orgasms. So maybe for them, it's more important to like have their clit up against the guy. And for other women, they want something very big inside of them. Um, like not all women are the same. So if you think there's like you encounter one woman who's not into your dick, well, that's one woman, you know, with one body. Hmm. Um and I think it's a lot about, you know, are you communicating with your partner about what she likes and how she, what gets her off, um, which could be many things that don't even involve your dick, you know? Right. Uh, and I, sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> I would just say to, you know, focusing on the anatomy, focusing on the dick mm-hmm. is essentially bypassing the issue i mean it's uh, good point it's a way it's a place to you know put yeah. your anxiety and insecurity and fear but what you're really dealing with is fear of intimacy or you know feel of not being enough like fear right. of not being enough yeah right yeah. inadequacy that has nothing to do with your body exactly right and not knowing how to deal with that or understand it or who to talk to about it of course you're going to focus on the physical body yeah, and how, I mean, this is a self-perpetuating issue because how much does your fear of and insecurity about your dick manifesting in your quote-unquote performance anxiety and mm-hmm. then it's like you can't have sex because you're so concerned that you mm-hmm. can't have sex. It's just like, that's not helping. So to just show up, even if you have experienced like imposter syndrome, I mean, I definitely oftentimes like, wow, you're attracted to me. I didn't have any idea like why I don't feel worthy of this or deserving of this. Um, but if you can just like show up and see the insecurities and the crap and sort of be like, okay, I see you and acknowledge you, but I'm gonna put you over here and just operate from a, from a place of confidence and, you know, optimism, uh, I think that would fare much better for (laughs) you getting laid or having sex or finding, you know, a partner or having a pleasurable experience in general. Yeah. No one's born good at sex. I mean, you can have intuition, you can have a sense of things, a feeling, but like there's a period of stumbling and confusion and, you know, fear essentially for everybody yeah and that woman's not thinking about your dick she's thinking about like her cellulite and her like uneven tits and you know yeah. this is all a self just like almost sort of narcissistic thing that goes right. on yeah that's yeah, interesting <laughs> what did you mean when you said uh women experience sex through their minds um <laughs> that essentially that you know there's all this emphasis on the physiology on the physical um and am I doing this in a way that makes her feel, you know, like she can come or whatever it is. Um, And of course that's part of it, but what's driving all that. And I would say what's underneath all that for sure is how she's relating to the partner emotionally and Mm. intellectually and whether or not they're communicating, if they're on the same page, you know what he's saying to her all yeah. all those things i think carry a lot more weight than 
I think a perfect example of that is what we talked about before in terms of asking questions. It's yeah. like I can think of two many, many different ways, but let's say two distinct ways that can happen. Like, oh, I'm really sorry. I don't know how to please you. Can you tell me? Is this okay? Is this is yeah, okay? Yeah, is that like, what about this? I, how can I do that? You know, or you're coming at it from a place of like solid security and confidence and you look, make eye contact with that woman and lower your voice and like talk in an erotic tone of like, what do you like? Are you kidding me? Like that's incredibly erotic. And that's all, that's all happening outside of bodies. It's it's happening in, in your, in your mind. So what about uh, like taking that same, that same discussion to female orgasm? I know a lot of men are, they feel like a failure if a woman doesn't have an orgasm when Mm -hmm. they're having sex. And I feel like that's the same kind of cycle you were talking about with performance. It's another kind of performance anxiety. It puts the woman under so much pressure. Uh, If you don't come, I'm going to feel bad about myself and about you and that this isn't working. And, you know, some other guy with a different dick would make you come right away and, you know, that yeah. kind of, that's another realm where people just need to chill the fuck well, out. Well, and there's another layer on top of that, which is, I think a lot of the quote unquote feminist rhetoric is like, if we don't, if this isn't equal all the time and you don't make me come every single time, right. you're a misogynistic pig. <laughs> so it's like these poor guys are from every <laughs> angle, just like, oh my God, I'm going to be, you know, me too'd and be seen as a failure at the same time because I couldn't make this woman come. Um so that sucks. <laughs> but, and this is another thing where young men, I think, experience things differently than older men, at least yeah. in, in my experience, where if a young man has sex and doesn't have an orgasm, that can be a very frustrating experience. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, like physically. Physically. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Whereas, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it necessarily is for a woman. If she's not she can have tons of pleasure without coming and feel great about it. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think it depends on the woman. And, but I do think there's a layer of female sexuality that goes beyond do I come or not, which is, am I giving that person pleasure? Am I giving my partner pleasure? Mm. Am I serving my partner? And did they come? Um, Did I make him or her, whatever, feel good? I think that, even if there is, let's say, a uh, thing where you're like, oh, I was really, you know, close to coming and didn't as a woman, um, there is that sort of additional factor, I think, that can feel equally, sometimes if not more, gratifying to give someone else pleasure in that way. And that's why I think, like, of course, this is nuanced. If some guy that just never doesn't know how to treat a woman or a woman or pleasure a woman, it just comes all the time. Look, that's not great either. But when there is a healthy, trusting, sort of fluid relationship um, to experience pleasure through the other person is. And I would also say to, you know, to the man, to the to the men who are, stuck in that particular loop you know the oh fuck i didn't make her come i can't make her come i'm not good enough yada 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 like you're doing great like you are on the right path in a sense like the sooner you can get yourself out of that loop the better of course for you and her but it's the men or people not just men um who don't care and who don't care to care you know, that's where the sort of resentment builds and the yeah. 
Well, neither extreme, right? On one extreme, it's it's indifference. Exactly. That's no good. No. On the other extreme, it's obsession. Right. And that's no good. I mean, I've I've spoken to women who've who've said like, basically, what they were saying is like, guys don't give me space to relax. Right. They're yeah. putting me on the spot. And how am I going to have an orgasm if I feel like you're going to freak out if I don't? Right. Totally. So, I, yeah. have have either of you faked orgasms? I have. Yeah, I made a decision when I was like, this is embarrassing because it's kind of (laughs) late, but I think I was like 27-ish, and I just said, like, I'm never faking another orgasm, Yeah, because I realized so clearly that I was doing that for him or for my partner in a way that was not beneficial to either of us and was Mm. actually sort of deceitful. And was it to take that pressure off? Yeah. it was, And it was my way of saying as a young woman, like, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Mm. You know, like, I'm having a good time. I'm fine. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. And, and that part of it was true. That part of it was true. But the the way I was going about it, obviously, was not. And yeah. I remember one thing my mom said to me from a very, very early age. Like, if you're not if you're not experiencing pleasure or you don't have a, a sex life that feels fulfilling to you, that's your problem. <laughs> like you need to take the initiative. Mm. What do, like, okay. So if you're with a guy, if you know how to come and you're with a guy and he's open and willing to experiment, but you're not honest with him about like, this feels good. That doesn't feel good. Whatever. Like you need to take responsibility for your own body and mm. be vulnerable enough to be like, this isn't working, but this is, and how can we do this? And, and, Hopefully, I mean, that conversation in and of itself would grow the intimacy of the couple. Um, but I think a lot of this, like, I can't make her come. Well, can she come at all? Right. Like, what? there's so many more layers to this about, um, you know, how what the woman's going through or what the man's going through. Right. The guy, the guy's experiences, too. They can't come. Um, but like, how much is that the partner and how much is that the person and how much is that the partnership? Right. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Lilo. <laughs> Actually, it will be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who make these incredible vibrators. So, and that that's, you know, I always say this to, to guys, like, you know, if you're with a woman and, you know, and it's a relationship and you're pursuing intimacy, like, take that pressure off her and then ask her how she gets there on her own. Like, what do you think about when you masturbate? Do right. you masturbate? Uh, you know, how do you masturbate, right? right? Do you put something inside yourself or yeah. you just rub your clit or what? And then like, do you have sex toys? Oh, can I see them? Like right. that's a way to get into a place where she's comfortable and feels accepted and you're not just like, I'm going to pound you until you come. Right. Like, and if that you're that work. type of person who wants to ask that question and is engaged and curious about sex and your partner shuts that down and isn't like, Find that out really soon, right? Because that's not a relationship that's going to last long term, you know. Or if like, it does, or it's just going to be yeah. horrible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, but so ask the question and then hear the answer or not or the lack thereof. Um, but that interaction in and of itself is so important. Yeah, and it goes the other way too. Yeah, I mean, there are women who are horrified at the thought that a man masturbates yeah, because that's like, you're cheating on me. Yeah. You're thinking about someone else or you're watching, porn, watching yeah. porn as opposed to women who are like, wow, what do you watch? Can I watch with you? That's a whole different kind of woman there. 
and uh, far better, <laughs> I have to say, gentlemen who are listening to this. Uh, okay, is there anything that we haven't covered? I feel like you've answered most of my questions. <laughs> Why wasn't there a podcast like this when I was 20? God yeah. damn. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, it's called Horror Rapport, mm-hmm. W-H-O-R-E-R-A-P-P-O-R-T. Yeah. Uh, you have a website. Yep, we do. Horrorrapport.com, yeah. I imagine. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and do you ever answer like listeners' questions? Do you do yeah, that? We do. Yeah, we've, we've done, done several episodes <laughs> just answering listener questions. Mm, I bet you get some interesting ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We yeah. like them a lot. We wish we got more of them. So well, word to the wise. I think you will. <laughs> yeah. After, after this goes live. Um, yeah, we have an email horrorpore at gmail dot com, and then we have a Patreon that we just launched as well. Patreon. Oh, great. So yeah. people can send you money for your <laughs> sexual service. Exactly. Yeah, yeah we're going to do bonus videos and we're going to try to create some sort of like contact sheet bulletin board for what people. What kind to of commute. bonus videos? <laughs> <laughs> There's one live already. P- PG. PG. Yeah, PG. PG. Mm. Uh, yeah, and um, what else? Oh, book list. So if anyone wants some reading material, we're offering oh, interesting. a, a yeah. reading list. Of is Sex at Dawn on your book list? <laughs> it is. It fucking is. better be. <laughs> in the top ten. Both of you read Sex at Dawn before you met me, personally, yeah. right? Correct. Yes. Huh. <laughs> so what you... Let's make this about me. Uh, was What was that like? Oh, that was like a very big formative moment in my life i guess i found it um at paleo fx and i was married at the time and my husband had just so you had never heard of it no it was just sitting on a table somewhere exactly and i but i was very i mean i went to school for gender and sexuality so like uh sex and you know anthropologically looking at sex was always very appealing to me and i was very into like ancestral health so seeing that surprised you hadn't heard of it yeah, I hadn't. It was, I was like twenty. I was doing so many maybe. fucking interviews <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to reach people just like yeah. you. Well, it found me somehow synchronistically mm. in a very important moment where I was dealing with like infidelity and my partner having a very bizarre long term affair. And and of course that experience for me was like uh, the sex part wasn't the part that was actually weird to me it was just you lying and betraying me. Um but I'm very interested to talk about this and learn about this. So uh yeah i read the book then um to sort of help me through that and my own kind of weird nuanced feelings toward that uh someone cheating on me which wasn't the sort of normal conventional reaction i think i was much more willing to to dive in and engage and explore. So how did the book inform your experience? Um because i i i mean up until that moment i I, on many levels, didn't think, like, monogamy was the thing for me or or potentially viable in general. Um, so to sort of see, like, cheating or sleeping with other people within the context and realm of, like, normality and sort of normal human behavior um, was relieving because that's how I felt. It was like everyone wanted me to be mad at him for fucking someone else, but I wasn't really. I was more mad at him for just lying about it. Like <laughs> I was always pointing out mm. hot girls and, you know, the type of relationship that I, I didn't think it was possible. So that's why I was like a monogamous housewife. Um, but I was, I was sort of actually thrilled at this event because I thought like it could sort of open doors for us to discuss things in, mm. in more depth and, 
Um, so that it felt just sort of, uh, like I just felt mirrored by the book in a way that, you know, years later meant new things and helped me in other ways. But at the time I just kind of felt better about my own unconventional reaction to this type of an event. What about you, Aaron? What do you love about my book? So much. I, it was, I had a similar experience. Um, I felt when I read it like, oh, finally, somebody's explicitly articulated everything I've felt (laughs) and known my whole life about human sexuality and also my own. Um, I actually had a boyfriend who said to me (laughs) toward the end of our relationship, if you ever go all sex at dawn on me, (laughs) this is over. Uh, Yikes. Well, obviously it ended. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Because you want all sex of Don on him. I, you know, I was thinking um, earlier how you guys embody something and, and, you know, you manifest something that I think is another thing that young men don't understand about women, which is that liberated female desire is not the same thing as promiscuity. Mm-hmm. 100%. And again, I think this is men projecting our experience of desire onto women, yeah. right? So yeah. young men are obsessed with bodies, so they think women are obsessed with their bodies. Not true. Young men experience desire as this sort of indiscriminate wanting to fuck everybody. And so we assume women feel that. And so I think a lot of the animosity that men feel toward women and a lot of that undermining behavior that we were talking about, you know, you're a slut, you're, you should be ashamed of yourself, you, you love it, you love fucking too much. Because if you love fucking me this much, then you're going to just go out and fuck everybody. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, because right. he's projecting his own experience yeah. there. But that is legit not how women experience the world. Yeah. I don't even think it's necessarily... Most women. I mean, yeah. there are women, obviously. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a spectrum. But yeah. sorry to interrupt. I was just going to think it's an oversimplification of men, too. It's sure. It's like men sure. can set boundaries and all of that stuff as well. Yeah, but I mean... I don't know. I mean, men's use of porn, for example, definitely suggests... You know, and men's, like... You know, I know, well, you you too. I know lots of women who are very sexually um, comfortable with themselves, but they have no problem going six months without yeah. having sex. And, Whereas uh, yeah. as a young man, going six months not having sex, that's a long fucking time. Yeah, yeah, not cheating. I mean, I think it's like the thing about you expect your partner. You, It's this Madonna whore thing is a huge part of this, but like men you know, on the one hand, want their woman to be super sexually embodied and full of desire and passionate and and assume that and hope that she's never going to feel that around anyone else. But even if she does feel that towards someone else, I think women are want to be and are in many ways extremely loyal. Um, and so that feeling, ex, you know, that feeling towards someone else that doesn't mean she's going to pursue it. It doesn't mean she loves you any less. It doesn't mean she dislikes your dick or whatever it is. Um, and I think the same can be reflected on a man, I guess is, that was my point, that 
you know, women expect they want their man to be like super passionate toward them and desiring of them. But like, don't you dare look at another woman. Like you don't, you Mm. don't get to have it both ways. Like a woman is sexually embodied. A male is sexually embodied. How that expresses itself. Um, Isn't part of the fear though, that, that women, I think fear other women and, and they don't trust men because often it comes down to the woman's choice. Totally. Right. So it's like, okay, I am sexual. I fantasize about fucking lots of dudes, but I'm not gonna. Right. Whereas, you know, just it's not up to the dudes whether I fuck them or not. It's up to me. Right. And if you're a guy, like let's say you have a girlfriend and you're allowing her to manipulate you, all that's doing is showing her that you are capable of being manipulated by women. Right. Which is creates more anxiety and more stress and more Mm. uh yeah lots of other problems like i think women try to see how (laughs) well a man doesn't fall victim to their shit because what they're trying to do is see like whether or not he can uphold his own boundaries uh and integrity in the context of other women right yeah and as far as you know the insecurity piece is concerned you and i talk about a lot how we're both like more monogamous in a non-monogamous relationship in a sense and I think what that's really speaking to is that loyalty piece and the difference between the ways in which men and women experience sex Hmm. back to the whole fucking her mind thing like if I feel safe if I feel understood if we're on the same page then that loyalty you know, obviously gets expressed in different ways, but it becomes like essential to the core partnership and the core relationship. Right. Right. And how often we've both been in situations where we both like outwardly explicitly said to the guy, like you should have sex with her. Isn't she hot? I'm totally down with this. (laughs) Yeah. And they don't even know how to, they don't know how to organize that or manage it. So then they go cheat. And then we're left being like, what is going on? You and know? they lie and say, oh, she's not hot. Yeah. You're it's like, like, are you kidding yeah, me, I know. dude? Yeah, Why I've are had you that interaction all the time. It's so, so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Please check out the waitress's ass. <laughs> yeah, please. Please. <laughs> but don't touch it. Uh, thank you, ladies, women, whatever the hell you are, whores. Um, you know, honest... Open conversation is a great public service. Thanks. Thank you. (laughs) Check out Horror Rapport, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation half as much as I did. If you enjoyed it half as much as I did, you really enjoyed it. I'm just back to remind you that this episode is brought to you by Lilo, who make, for my money, the best sex toys in the world super high quality super sophisticated totally waterproof programmable just freaking amazing if you use the code chris ryan no space in between you save 20 percent off any full priced item at lilo at the moment and go to my instagram feed that chris ryan and uh, you'll see how to sign up to get the uh, medium smart wand in plum this month that's what we're giving away this month all right thank you for listening everybody thank you for your support of this podcast however it manifests whether it's by using my amazon link uh to order your holiday goodies if you're using amazon or uh signing up uh, for the podcast 
support podcast forum at uh, thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. Whatever you do, however you do it, if you throw money in the tip jar, a significant amount of it goes on to other people. And my God, there's a lot of need right now. A lot of uh, a lot of shit hitting the fan in America. So let's all try to help people. If you know someone, think about them. They're alone right now. Reach out. Say hi. Do what you can. All right. Thanks, everybody. Love you. Talk to you soon. Okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You want to shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone It's a big deal if you want to be free. Say what you want to feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.